This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. Welcome back. This episode is about open notes. If you work clinically, you are or very soon will be mandated to share your notes with your patients electronically. This is because of the 21st Century Cures Act. I don't know about you, but that's a little anxiety provoking for me. So to alleviate my stress, I spoke with Dr. Scott McDonald. He is a primary care internist at UC Davis and the medical director for clinical informatics and the electronic health record system at UC Davis. All right, Scott, first off, what is Open Notes or the 21st Century Cures Act? Well, the law has a lot of different pieces to it. Um, there's things in the law talking about uh, insurance companies sharing information with patients. There's a lot talking about how healthcare providers, insurance companies need to share information with each other. Uh, but a big part of the law that's really changing everybody's world right now is the mandate to share information with the patients themselves. And not only with the patients themselves, but also anybody that the patient says they want the information shared with. So in the case of our patient portal, patients may have a proxy who has access to their chart and information we share with the patient are visible by the patient's family members. And this can be very beneficial to family members, especially for a patient who's uh, maybe cognitively impaired. A family member can better understand through reading the notes what their care team is thinking, what their physician's recommending, what happened during an emergency visit. Oftentimes, uh, mom might end up in the ER for a visit and they come back and nobody really knows what happened to their parent or maybe to their child or their spouse. But by being able to read the notes, they can really see what's going on. They can read what the physician recommended that they do to treat their condition. The literature around sharing notes does seem to show that sharing notes with patients increases the trust of patients and the care team. It looks like it also leads to improved adherence to treatment plans which makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, when a patient's in a stressful situation, like an emergency room visit, when they're sick and scared, they may not be as receptive to really understanding what the physician and the nurses are telling them during their stay. But if they can reread all that information a day or two later when things have settled down, then uh, they're going to much better understand what happened, why, and what they can do to help themselves moving forward. Why was this passed anyway? The reason it was passed was to really fulfill the promise of electrifying our health records. And part of that is to have interoperable health records so that everybody involved in taking care of a patient, including the patient themselves and their family, has access to all the health records and the information they need to do a good job and to make sure that the highest quality outcomes are achieved. So this law was first passed actually back in 2016, signed by President Obama. But it took a couple of years for the regulatory rulemaking to happen. And the rule was finally published earlier this year in May and had a six-month uh, leeway for us to become compliant. At UC Davis, we made a lot of plans, put a lot of effort in for our go-live date on November 16th, just yesterday, in fact. Although, interestingly enough, three or four days before the compliance date, the federal government gave a reprieve and pushed out the compliance date for several months. But we were so far down the pathway and felt that sharing notes and results with patients was the right thing to do, that we continued on our 
a previously determined path and stuck with our November 16th date. Some other health systems are uh, delaying their implementation around the country, but about half of us, at least in the folks I've talked to, are proceeding and, and going live with sharing notes this month. So how does this logistically work? Like you write a note, you sign it, and it's immediately shared, or how does this happen? Uh, kind of depends on your EHR system. The one we use at UC Davis Health for ED visits, those notes are going to be shared right away as soon as the, uh, actually the attending physician signs the note. So if a note's written, started off by a trainee, a resident intern, then uh, if that's designated in the system as needing a cosign by the attending physician, then the system will wait till the attending physician cosigns that. Then it's released. Similar on the inpatient side and on the ambulatory side, the system waits till the whole encounter is finished. So a primary care visit, for example, in my situation, I can write my note and it'll sit there till I wrap up the encounter and I enter all my billing information and everything like that. And then when I close it, then the note is published and available to the patient. And it's not just doctor notes. It's lab results. It's radiology results. It's all of it. So notes is very broad. And there's nothing in the federal law that talks about physician notes versus nursing notes. It's all notes. And this kind of goes back to the HIPAA law that was passed in the early 2000s, where HIPAA law makes it very clear that the health record is the patient's health record. It belongs to the patient, and the patient has every right to access the information in their record. And the 21st Century Cures Act really brings that into the 21st century and says that not only do they have access, should have access, and the right to have access, but they should have electronic access. They should have convenient, non-delayed access to their health records, just like you do if you want to look at your bank balance or look at the status of your flight that you booked online. Because the federal law doesn't talk about restricting it to certain author types, we're interpreting the law as meaning everybody who writes a note in our EHR, that's a note that should be shared. So that's uh, nurses, social workers, physical therapists, speech therapists, medical assistants. We're able to judiciously block some notes. The federal law does give us eight exceptions in the law that says there's some situations where you don't need to share notes, and if you block them, it's okay. Okay, let's talk about those exceptions a little bit. What are some times when we shouldn't share our notes or we don't have to share our notes? So the federal law is pretty clear. It does One thing is if there's a state law or some other law that says it's okay to block a note, then you can do that. So those mostly have us go look at California state law in our case. State laws around notes that are probably most pertinent are things where there may be abuse involved. So there's some privacy laws to protect reporters of abuse, whether adult or child. And so that's a situation where to kind of preserve the privacy of the note author to comply with that state law, we can do a little bit of blocking of some notes for that. In the federal law, most of the exceptions have to do with technical reasons. For example, if the system is down undergoing an upgrade in the middle of the night, we don't have to share information just because we can't. The system's being upgraded. Other things like if there's a Russian hacker attack going on and we know that this application programming interface is vulnerable to being hacked, we can turn that off and that's not data blocking. But there's only kind of two things that a clinician is really going to invoke in terms of thinking about blocking a note. One is physical harm, I'll say. Now, that's physical harm mostly intended to be the patient, but it could be somebody else. 
And note, it's not emotional harm. It's not provoking anxiety. It's if you think this information is going to lead to the patient or somebody else having a, quote, reasonable likelihood, unquote, of physical harm, then you can block that note. There's also a clause in there that says substantial harm as well, but nowhere else do they define what substantial harm might actually mean. So that's something we kind of have to wait until we get some case law in place to help us determine what that means. So for now, I'd be pretty cautious about using the significant harm clause because we don't really know what that means and how uh, strictly the feds are going to interpret this law if they start investigating complaints of data blocking against any healthcare provider. So physical harm is one. So this may be more useful if you're dealing with a situation of abuse. Um, if you think that you know a patient has a spouse who's been abusing them and that spouse has access to the patient's health record through the portal as well, and that if the spouse found out that the victim had brought this up with their care provider, then uh, they might abuse them more, then that's a reason you can block that note. Yeah. One thing you might consider is writing a separate note for sensitive information. I think in a few years, once patients and their caregivers are accustomed to looking and reading the notes on a routine basis, if they know that someone has been in the hospital or emergency room or had a visit with their ambulatory provider and there's no note, they're going to get suspicious and they're going to wonder why there's no note. So what I plan to do in similar situations is to write a regular note for most of the uh, reason I'm seeing them and then write a brief secondary note that will contain the sensitive issue that needs to be blocked and I'll block that secondary note. That way, other non-sensitive issues are still clear and they're shared with the patient and their caregivers, which still may be very important for making sure everybody's understanding what's going on. But uh, I'll write that secondary note from first sensitive information. And then the next, I think, which will be more frequently used reason for blocking is to protect privacy. Now, the privacy exception is a little bit more broad, and that can be used both to protect the privacy of the patient so, for example, if you're seeing a patient with uh, pelvic inflammatory disease and you may want to protect that patient's privacy because their spouse may not know that that patient's had an affair, for example, and picked up chlamydia. To protect the patient's privacy with the patient's consent, you can block that note so that their spouse doesn't see it. Another good use case for having that secondary note. Now, keep in mind there that I said that that was kind of at the patient's consent, right? So this is a situation where we want to get away from being paternalistic. And in fact, this whole law is really about getting us away from being paternalistic. But in this case, it's something you might want to discuss with your patient. And I think this may be a routine discussion everybody should have when they're dealing with sensitive issues in any clinical situation is, I'm going to write this up in my note, but if you want me to not, not share this in the patient portal, because you're, if you're concerned at all about anybody reading this, just let me know and I can block it. And if the patient says, yeah, block it, you're well within the, the constraints of the law to do so. You could also block it for other people's information that might be in the note. So one example is transplant patients. Um, if there's information about the donor in the note, you can block that note to protect the privacy of the donor. So that's another use case there. Not very common in emergency department, but be useful some other places. One other privacy um, situation would be if you've received collateral history from somebody, a family member, a friend, 
about a patient and the history giver is worried about their privacy and they don't want the patient to know that they told you that maybe the patient's been abusing drugs or something like that, then that's another reason where you can block that note because you're protecting the privacy of the person who's providing that additional history. Okay, I think you're alluding to it here with having the conversation, but how does this apply to teens? I think using that patient-directed privacy exception is going to be really key with adolescents. This is an area where you should understand how your organization sets up your patient portal for teens, because it's pretty variable across the state and across the country. In our organization, we have what's called um, medium access for teens' parents and full access for teens. So a teen is going to be able to read their note, see all their test results. But in order to protect the teen's privacy around issues of reproductive health and substance use, primarily, we only give this medium access to their parent proxy. So a parent for a teen can look and see if they have appointments, they can see their billing information, but they can't read the notes, they can't read those results. That said, we know from in our organization and across California at least that very often teens my chart accounts actually have parental email addresses attached to them. And so we don't have an exact number, but a lot of parents probably do have access through an unofficial backdoor to teens my charts. So that's part of that discussion you want to have with teenagers is, you know, does your parent maybe have access to your password and your login for your MyChart account or whatever your patient portal is called? And if the patient is concerned at all that the parent may have access to their account and you're discussing something that the teen doesn't want shared with the parent, then you can block that on behalf of this adolescent on the basis of privacy. And another spinoff consideration around that is also to maybe ask about um, if the teen feels like they might be coerced. So even if the teen hasn't shared their password with a family member, but they have, depending on the family dynamics, they feel like they could be talked into or coerced into giving their access, that's another reason you might want to uh, ask the patient if you want that note blocked or not. All right, Scott, some physicians have already been sharing their notes How is that going? What have we learned so far? Yeah, I'm one of them. I've been part of our pilot program for the past year. I've been sharing all of my notes for my clinic visits. I haven't heard any problems from it. The notes are framed within our patient portal with some uh, information for the patients talking about what a note is, what it's for, what's a subjective, what's objective, kind of some of the general terminology around notes. So that probably helps a little bit. As to the jargon that's in the notes, patients have the internet and the patients can Google terms that they don't understand. There's lots of medical dictionary websites and resources out there that patients can use to help uh, decode our jargon. That said, if we want to start writing our notes a little bit more patient-friendly, that's fine. It's not mandated by any means, but it's another audience to the note that we're not used to writing for. We're used to writing for billers. We're used to writing for each other. But now we should keep in the back of our minds that, you know, how's this going to come across when a patient reads it? Things like uh, acronyms and shortcuts sometimes can be uh, concerning, like SOB. You know, SOB is something you might want to actually spell out instead of having the patient read that. How often are patients actually accessing and reading these notes? Let me talk a little bit about the Open Notes movement. So, this is a nonprofit organization that's been advocating for 
sharing notes with patients and their families for a decade at least. And uh, they are based out of Brigham and Women's. And they've actually done a fair bit of research around um, open notes over the years. And it looks pretty typical that today, 20%-ish of notes are read by patients. Um, and that's been our experience here in the middle, middle teens is where our patients have been reading. I expect that over the next year, that number is probably going to go up. I don't think it'll ever go up to 100, but I think as the general public awareness of open notes and the 21st Century Cures Act increases, I think people are going to be more curious. They're going to start looking. They're going to start seeing the value. And, and I think our note read rate is going to go up. As someone who's been sharing notes for a while, what do we need to be aware of as we are writing these notes? I would say be professional. I think most of us already are. But if you're keeping your notes to just the facts, you're describing your observations, you know, your subjective and objective findings and your thoughts, and stay away from casting aspersions on people's personalities in the notes. Don't call them whiners or whatever else it might be. I, I don't think many of us do that, but that's the only thing I caution people of. Treat them like adults even the adolescents. Yeah, it sounds like a good principle for working with our patients anyways. I, I like it. Yeah, I guess another way to put it would be, if you were the patient and you're reading that note, how would it make you feel? And if it makes you feel bad, maybe you should rethink how you wrote it. It's all going to be a little complicated for a while. So where can we go to get some more resources? A uh, place I think I would recommend going is opennotes.org. They've been at this for many years and they've got a lot of data a lot of studies talking about it. The most general statement I'll say about the research over the years is that patients love it, doctors fear it until they do it. But once they do it, it, it turns out to be really a non-issue for the most part for physicians. That's been the experience in the literature across the country as well as our experience here at Davis. I know it's been my personal experience. I don't think I've had a single patient complain about anything that's been in my notes. And I've done a survey with the most prolific note sharers here at UC Davis over the past year and asked them some of these questions about, has it impacted your workflow? And the answer is no, not really. There have been a few folks that have called in to take issue with content in their notes, but for the most part, the concerns have been very reasonable. It's been, you know, no, I came in with the left ankle sprain when you wrote it was my right ankle. So things that actually should be fixed. You, know, you said that I had fatty liver disease, but I don't. That was that other patient you saw right before that you got confused. So I think that's another value of having patients reading notes is being another pair of eyes and making sure that any uh, unintentional mistakes we make as physicians can be caught early before they can turn into anything harmful to the patient. I hope you find this helpful. Scott left us with some reassuring words. He has already been sharing his notes, and he says this is going to be okay. Patients love it. Doctors fear it until they do it. We don't have all the answers right now about open notes, but approach your notes professionally and objectively. If you suspect violence, coercion, or have a teen, have the conversation with that patient about sharing the note. If you think the information in the note will lead to harm for the patient, another person, or yourself based off of that information, consider not sharing or writing a separate note and not sharing that separate note with the sensitive information. 
That said, the vast majority of your notes should be shared. There are potential very big fines if we don't appropriately share. This is gonna be awkward and there's gonna be a little bit more work at first, but there are some benefits like better patient communication and compliance. Let us know how it goes for you on social media at EM Pulse Podcast, and we'll see you next time.